Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I am the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed Summit. Okay, just a few reminders before I introduce this episode's guest. First, in honor of the holiday season, we have extended the early bird deadline for CanMed 24 through December 31st. Don't miss this chance to save hundreds on your full summit package, which includes access to the medical practicum, industry workshops, oral presentations, poster presentations, networking events, meals, and a three-night stay at the JW Marriott Marco Island Resort with all the associated amenities. So head over to canmedevents.com now to register, and I hope to see you in Florida this May. I also wanted to mention that we have added details about the CanMed 24 full-day medical practicum on our website. This year, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Ethan Russo to the practicum faculty, and we look forward to him sharing his extensive knowledge and experience with cannabinoid therapeutics. He will be joined by fellow instructors, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Dustin Sulak, and Eloise Thiessen. If you aren't familiar with those names, I invite you to read about them on canmedevents.com. And if you are familiar, then you already know that you can't get any better instructors than this group. Again, go to canmedevents.com now to learn more. This episode, I spoke with Dr. Patricia DiCiano. Patricia is a scientist with the Institute of Mental Health and Policy Research at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. She is also an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto. Patricia has a multidisciplinary background and her general research area is clinical trials and regulated studies into the safety of cannabis and other substances of abuse. Earlier this year, she co-authored a study that evaluated the utility of THC cutoff levels in blood and saliva for the detection of impaired driving. During our conversation, we discussed the different allowable limits for THC levels in drivers, the relationship between THC levels and impaired driving, the best fluid to test for THC levels, the additive effects of combining alcohol and cannabis on driving impairment, the differences in how alcohol and cannabis affect driving performance, and more. Before we get to my conversation with Patricia, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Trusted Canna Nurse. Trusted Canna Nurse was founded by Megan Bang and Arianne Williams, two nurses who are dedicated to bridging the gap between traditional medicine and the world of cannabis and psychedelics. They specialize in creating evidence-based treatment plans for all ages that address chronic illness, treatment-resistant conditions, mental health, autism, and more. Learn more at trustedcannanurse.com. Okay. And without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Patricia DiCiano.
Good afternoon, Patricia. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'm excited to talk with you today about cannabis and driving. This seems to be a topic that comes up quite often as ju different jurisdictions loosen their restrictions on cannabis. One of the major concerns from lawmakers, law enforcement, and the general public is how do we keep impaired drivers off the road? And a lot of a lot of times the question is, is there an equivalent breathalyzer test for cannabis? And um, I think we all know it, it turns out that it's not that easy. So you and your team recently published a new study that looks at this problem, which I'm eager to dive into. But first, I'd like to start broadly and ask, is there data that shows that incidents of impaired driving increase in states or countries that legalize cannabis? So that's an interesting question. And the data, as most things in the field, is, is not 100% you know, clear one way or the other. I should say that most of the research has been done uh, up till a couple of years ago. It was mostly done in the U.S., so looking at uh, states that legalized cannabis, either for medical reasons a number of years ago or more recently for recreational reasons, uh, purposes, and compared pre and post, or they compared legal versus non-legal states. So there are two different ways to do this. And some studies found that the incidence of impaired driving after cannabis or driving under the influence of cannabis went up with legalization, and others found that it went down. Others found that it stayed the same. So it's actually not that clear. Um, you may ask, why would it go down? Uh, why would um, driving under the influence of cannabis go down after legalization? There's three possible explanations. One is uh, that people with increased access to cannabis seem to be switching from using alcohol to using cannabis. And we know that although cannabis is bad for driving, it does impair driving, it's not as bad as alcohol. So perhaps we're seeing fewer arrests because the driving is, is still impaired, but not as impaired. Um, also, there could be more um, increased enforcement of driving under the influence of cannabis in legal states than non-legal states. So we're we're picking it up. So we're we're just there's more enforcement of it in those states. Interesting. Okay. And so no, and that's a good point. You are you're joining us from Canada, and as I understand it, there are established limits for THC concentrations uh, for drivers in Canada. What are those? And sort of. You know, based on your research or your knowledge in the area, um, do you have an opinion? Is that too low, too high, or? So the legal limits vary by jurisdiction. Some some don't have limits. Others have limits of blood THC. So THC being a psychoactive component of cannabis that's thought to impair driving. Um, uh, five five nanograms per mil seems to be the the limit that most people sort of um, talk about. And in Canada, we have two different limits. One is two nanograms per mil, which is sort of the lower uh, level of offense, and then five nanograms per mil, which is a higher level of offense. And so the jurisdictions vary. Some have a zero tolerance, which has a zero nanogram per mil threshold, and others have two, others have five. Um, so in the paper that you had mentioned, uh, what, what we looked at was whether or not there's a relationship of THC in the blood to impaired driving. Of course, one way to deter driving after the use of cannabis is to look at blood THC um, and, and see how that, uh, and see what the levels are. So if a police officer suspects somebody of being impaired, 
uh, after cannabis, they can pull them over, they can do a number of roadside tests, then they can take them back to a lab to, to have blood drawn. And what we found, which is coming out of the, the literature more and more, although it's not, again, it's not 100% one way or the other, is that as as blood THC goes up, we don't necessarily see an exact relationship to changes in driving. So we look at weaving, which is the amount of departure from a lane, which is a measure that's very consistently affected by cannabis and other drugs. So just how much you deviate when you're moving in your lane. So we call it weaving. The scientific term is standard deviation of lateral position. So we looked at that and tried to see how that relates to blood THC. And we didn't see that there was a clear relationship. So as blood THC levels went up, we didn't necessarily see an exact correspondence of changes in driving. Some people were impaired at higher levels of blood THC, others weren't. There wasn't an exact relationship. But if we sort of broke it down by the five nanogram per mil threshold and looked at those who were above versus those who were below, we found that those two groups were different. So there seems to be some merit in those limits that we do seem to be detecting um, some measure of impairment. Although I have to put the caveat in there that that was just for smoked cannabis, we may see mm. differences with edibles or other routes of administration. Interesting. So as the concentration goes up, you don't necessarily see um, ad additional impairment, but that five nanogram uh, per, per mil or what was it? Five nanograms um, per mil. Perfect. Um, that was kind of a clear cutoff that you're most likely going to be impaired if if you if you go beyond that. How yeah. does that? And now, how does that how does that compare with something that people are probably more familiar with, like alcohol? Is there more of a linear linear relationship there? I believe that there is with blood alcohol. It's more straightforward because um, you're you're measuring more directly, sort of, in a, a vapors that come off the breath. So it's a more clear relationship with. With cannabis, you're measuring blood THC, which has it gets acted on by enzymes more in a more different way. So it's not quite clear that what's in the blood is necessarily reflecting what's in the brain and what's working in terms of impairment. With cannabis, with alcohol, there's more of a clear relationship between the the what comes off the breath and what is found in uh, in driving. It's more it's more of a challenge with cannabis. Right. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of dig into that because I think there's a, a number of different challenges, if if I'm understand correctly, and one of them being that there's a number of different fluids that can be tested, and I know that your your paper kind of looked at this kind of saliva versus urine versus uh, blood. So, what is sort of the the best one to use? So right now at the roadside, uh, what is happens. I know in Canada for sure, I, I, I think it's similar in the U.S., is if an uh, officer is suspects somebody of being impaired, they, they pull them over and they do a, a standardized field sobriety test, which is, a you know, touching your nose and looking at uh, the stagnus and, and your ability to walk in the one leg stand, uh, you know, your balance and things like that, which we've all seen on TV. I'm sure we're a little bit familiar with what that looks like. Uh, and then they're also able to do at the roadside. And I know in Canada, we use this. It's a saliva test that measures. It gives you a reading that says positive or negative if you're above a certain level or not. And then there's the blood, which they can take you back to the lab and they can look at the blood levels of THC as well. Then there's urine, of course. 
um, which is a bit of a different beast because with urine, you're measuring the breakdown products of cannabis. You're measuring what it comes off the cannabis, whereas with saliva and blood, you're measuring uh, THC uh, directly. So for that reason, urine probably isn't a great indicator of recent use. Also, uh, as we know, the these breakdown products of cannabis of THC can last in the urine for days, weeks, very, a very long time. So it is not a great indicator of very recent use. It just says that somebody has used in the past few days or potentially longer. Whereas saliva tells you more of a, a, small, a short time window in the past sort of 12 hours and blood can give you a more definitive timeline. Um, you know, if somebody has very high levels of blood THC, then you know they've used fairly recently or smoked fairly recently. Um, and, and if they're lower then they would have used at some point in the past day or so. So that's more of an accurate time window for blood and saliva. Right. And now is it fairly easy to kind of look at the concentrations in the blood or saliva and sort of trace backwards how much cannabis the person could have ingested again I'm, I'm sorry i'm going to keep doing this i'm going to keep kind of doing the comparison to alcohol but you know if you're at like a 0.8 um alcohol level you can kind of kind of go back and be like okay they've probably had a few a few drinks at least in the past hour or two can you do a similar thing with cannabis it's really uh to to estimate the last time of use and the exact amount of use is quite challenging with cannabis because the amount of thc in blood and urine is really dependent on a lot of factors including age sex mm. how often you use cannabis what form of cannabis you use so we know that smoked and baked cannabis produce very much higher levels very quickly in blood and saliva than with uh, edibles, for example. But edibles last very a lot longer than smoked. With smoked or vaped, it's gone in five hours. With edibles, it's much, it can last much longer. So if somebody comes up with 10 nanograms per mil of THC, uh, it's really hard to know what kind of cannabis they used and when they last used it. Also, um, people who use frequently, the cannabis might stick around longer in the blood, urine, uh, than people who use infrequently. So it's 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 very it's very challenging. We, we we can tell you've used recently, but we don't know exactly how much or when that was. Excellent. All right, and so let's dig into the study you did uh, more specifically. So um, please explain kind of what is it that you looked at um, and sort of what makes this study maybe different or more unique than the other ones that have been, been done kind of more recently? So what we did differently was we compared what the standard approach is to look at relationships of blood THC to driving versus what we thought might be informative in terms of what the legal limits mean. So traditionally what people do is they do that, a correlation. So a statistical correlation, they look for one-to-one uh, -one mapping of blood THC to uh, changes in driving. So the person who has the highest level of blood THC would also have the highest level of change in driving. And the person with the lowest would blood THC would have the lowest change in driving. And everyone in the middle would sort of map out, you know, correspondingly, incrementally within that, within that range. Mm -hmm. um, and what we find is that correlation is very, is, is, is not necessarily so straightforward. So some people find there is a correlation, others don't. So we asked 
are the legal limits somehow informative as opposed to just trying to find a simple relationship between blood THC and driving? So um, given that the, you know, we have these legal limits in Canada and other jurisdictions, can they help us detect who is not capable or not fit to drive at the time? And the conclusion was that those who were above the higher, the more uh, greater offense of blood THC were, were definitely more impaired than those who are below that level. So our conclusion was that these limits may have some utility. Um, of course, we did have, you know, our caveats in there. It's just for smoking. Right now, we don't know all of the routes of administration. We don't know difference in, in frequency of use, how that would affect it, but just basically that the limits may have some utility. Right. You know, and I'm curious too, um, how did you sort of look at the 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 difference in time from when they actually used and when the test was administered? Was it like quickly after or did you kind of give them time to maybe sober up a little bit? Like how did how was that? How did that work? So they they all they were all invited to the lab for standard test sessions. They were there were four test sessions. Um, and this was a part of a larger study looking at the effects of alcohol and cannabis combined. So when you take alcohol and cannabis together, um, does it make driving a lot worse than just alcohol or cannabis on their own? Um, and, and how much worse is, is it combining the two? So we had four conditions, one in which they just drank alcohol to a breath alcohol of, well, the, the target was 0.08, which is the legal limit in Canada, which is uh, about, three, about three drinks, I think, depending on the size of the person. And then the other condition, they smoked uh, cannabis, 12.5% uh, THC joint they were given. And the other condition, they had the two combined. And the fourth test session, it was just a placebo. So it was just a fake alcohol, fake cannabis. And they didn't know what they were getting at each test session. So it was they, they, they were just given a drink and it could have had vodka or or could have just had lime juice and they didn't know. And similarly with the cannabis cigarette. So uh, they didn't know what they were given on a certain day. And what we did was they came in and they went to our, what we call our bar lab. It's a lab which looks like a bar basically. And they drank um, a drink of vodka, a vodka drink, which doesn't smell, doesn't, has very little taste. So we could mask it quite easily with the non-alcohol condition. And then about half an hour later, they were invited uh, to our smoking lab, negative pressure room where they were asked to smoke the cannabis and, uh, to, to the usual level of intoxication and to stop if they felt sick. And then about half an hour later, they drove the simulator. So it was very controlled for each person. It was more or less the same interval between each, each um, event. Interesting. And so now you said that you evaluated whether... The, the combination of alcohol and cannabis would be worse than uh, either of those alone. What were the results there? So that, yeah, so there's, just to give you some background, there's a lot of um, sort of debate in the literature as to whether combining alcohol and cannabis produce what's called additive effects. So you just, it's, you know, if you weave, or let's use the example of speed, it's probably easier to understand. So if your uh, speed goes up by, two miles an hour under cannabis and two miles an hour under alcohol. If it's additive, then taking the two would increase the speed by four. Mm -hmm. 
but if it's interactive or synergistic, then it will be more than four. So it could be eight or 10. So the two actually work to make each other a lot worse than just the sum of their parts. Hmm. So there's some debate in the literature as to whether the effects would be additive or synergistic. And we found that it was, we believe it was additive based on our data. We didn't do the full analysis on that, but we believe looking at the numbers, it was additive. So their weaving uh, doubled, so to speak, with alcohol and cannabis, like you just added the numbers up together. Uh, and we published a review a couple of years ago where we looked at uh, combining alcohol and cannabis on driving cognition, so learning and memory, and also in levels of intoxication. And most papers seem to show that it's an additive. So there is like summing the parts and combining the two is worse than either one alone, for sure. Great. And then how about cannabis versus alcohol? Who who did worse? So we found they did similar there in that one study, the impairments were similar. So we found that cannabis increased weaving, which is a consistent finding across almost all the studies done with cannabis and driving and, can, and alcohol also increased weaving, which is also very consistent uh, with alcohol. It's pretty much a hallmark of, of alcohol and, and cannabis. That's one of the things that's usually uh, impaired and they were impaired to this more or less the same degree after alcohol and cannabis and then taking them together just doubled you know doubled it doubled each one of those um, also what's generally found with cannabis is that cannabis also in, slows your time to react to events on the road we didn't find that but a lot of studies do find that and it also uh alters your ability to maintain a distance, proper distance with the car in front of you. And it also slows people down uh, because they're driving more carefully. People who use cannabis say they're aware that they're intoxicated, so they mm. slow down. Whereas with alcohol, they drive faster generally than, than slower. So so that's interesting talking about the, the differences between alcohol and cannabis yet again. So how are the impairing effects of alcohol and cannabis different? Because I think anyone who's who's used both knows that, they're, that they are different. So um, speak a little bit about that. So with respect to driving, um, cannabis increases weaving, as does alcohol. Where they're different mostly is that cannabis... And the big one of the big findings that we get from cannabis that seems to come out in a lot of papers, not all of them, is that it tends to slow people down because they know they're impaired. Uh, so they're they're more cautious on the road. Uh, it doesn't mean they're a better driver. It just means that they know that they're mm -hmm. impaired. Whereas with alcohol, they speed and they and they're more they're much more reckless drivers. So I I at the beginning of the interview we talked about. Um, what the effect legalization had on driving under the influence of cannabis. And I mentioned that it, in some jurisdictions, the rate of driving under the influence of cannabis went down after legalization or with legalization. And that's because people think that they're switching from alcohol to cannabis. So alcohol is much worse because maybe they're not aware that they're as impaired and they're driving faster and they're weaving on the road. Whereas with cannabis, they're aware and they're they're slowing down. They're compensating for their impairment, but they're still impaired. Hmm. No, and that's an interesting point too, because um, that might actually keep impaired drivers off the road, right? If they know that they're impaired and maybe shouldn't be driving, maybe they'll just choose not to drive. 
so I don't think we have data on that, but certainly from talking to the participants in my studies, they definitely say that they don't drive after they use cannabis and they're aware that they're not driving very well and, and they're very cautious about driving after using cannabis. And that tends to be what we get a lot in, in self-report is people say that they're, they're aware. Although we do know that about 25% of people who use cannabis do drive after using cannabis. And especially with respect to medical cannabis, people believe that it doesn't affect them. So they will drive after using cannabis for medical reasons. Interesting. Um, but could it be... Oh, never mind, we won't go there. Um, so in terms of measuring the concentrations in the blood, um, it's my understanding too that THC can be detected in the blood for a, a long time after use. So how do we sort of control for that? That's right. So THC in the blood can be detected in the blood blood for a number of um, days, and I've I've seen papers where it's above not one or or it's above one or two nanograms per mil, which is some of the cutoffs for for weeks potentially. It's generally in people who use cannabis frequently, so every every day or more than once a day that we see that these levels continue and they persist. So that is a challenge, I think. Um, what's unknown is the degree of impairment of people the day after they've used cannabis. It's unknown right now if frequent users are not good drivers the next day. Some studies will have found that they are impaired, even though they haven't used that day. And there are some studies looking at blood THC, which have found that people are um, more impaired as the blood THC goes up the day after uh, using cannabis. So it's important. That is a good question. And it's very relevant to medical users and very frequent users who might have residual blood THC the next day. But that's a question that still needs to be explored, I think, more fully in terms of what the long-term uh, effects are of using cannabis. No, and you're right. And I just recently spoke with uh, a researcher in Australia, uh, Danielle McCartney, who did a review of a lot of these um, studies that are looking at next day impairment. And um, I mean, one of her conclusions was that we need more studies because they weren't all of, of really great quality. So um, hopefully she's going to do some more investigation into that and we can uh, get a more definitive answer. But but you did mention frequent users. And I wanted to ask you too, of the participants in your study, were there um, you know, cannabis naive users or more frequent users? And was there sort of a difference in their performance? Um, so we the in the study that we have talking about, uh, the participants were required to use cannabis at least once a week. It's uh, we all of our studies need to get approval by an ethics board. So we have to make sure that our studies are ethical and we're not putting our participants at risk. And I think one of the criteria that ethics boards, in my experience, usually have is that people who who use cannabis in a research study have to have experience with cannabis. So you're not potentially causing them you know, illness or, or something, an adverse event in the lab. So we generally recruit people who use cannabis at least once a week to mm -hmm. ensure that they have experience with cannabis. Um, although that does vary. Some people will use more frequent users and some people will recruit people with uh, less who are less frequent users than that. We did not break it down in our study by frequency of use in terms of the effect. P 
people have looked at that and they have looked at occasional sort of, you know, once a month users versus frequent users. So daily users or four times a week more or more. And, and the, again, as a lot of things, the findings are, are inconclusive. I believe uh, of the three or four studies done, roughly half find that uh, frequent users are more impaired and half find that they're less impaired than the uh, mm. occasional users. We are looking at doing a study or we're gearing up to do a study where we look at frequency of use as a moderating variable and also age. So potentially the age of the participant might interact with how frequency of use influences uh, driving after using cannabis. Great. And that was going to be my next question is sort of where do we go from here and, and what are you looking at next? And I think you just answered that. But if there's if there's other things that you're investigating, um, please. I, I think age is really important. We just finished a study looking at older adults, so over 65. People over 65 are the uh, fastest or grow, fastest growing population of cannabis users. So the mm -hmm. number of people over 65 who use cannabis have, has grown exponentially in the past number of years compared to the number of younger users who are increasing the, the compared to how many, yeah, the increase in prevalence in younger adults. But yet they're generally overlooked in research studies. We know very little about how cannabis affects older adults, so over 65, in terms of how it affects memory, attention, um, and other cognitive measures. Mostly memory and attention are affected by cannabis. We also don't know very much about how it affects their driving. We finished a study and we just finished a study where we showed that people over 65 do show impairments in driving, but it's unclear as to whether the amount of change in driving uh, was less than younger adults. So maybe they're less sensitive to cannabis. That's not clear. Uh, and we don't know much about how blood THC works in older adults. We know that older adults have more, more body fat. They have changes in metabolism, so that they're slower to metabolize drugs. So potentially blood THC could break down differently in them. We just have very little information on older adults. Interesting. All right. Um, so Patricia, I do want to be very mindful of your time. I think I've, I've kept you for uh, for the half hour that I... Um, that I promised. But before I let you go, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, share any other additional resources on this topic um, that might be helpful for the listeners or the viewers to to read more about, or um, if there's a, a website or any way to get in touch with you, um, if they have any additional questions or just want to connect, uh, please plug away. So one resource that I use a lot, which is it's a Canadian source, but it might be interesting to Americans and other countries as well, just in terms of general statistics on cannabis use and you know how many people drive after using cannabis, what age groups use cannabis, what kinds of cannabis do people use, why do they use cannabis. Uh, it's called the Canadian Cannabis Survey and it's conducted by the sort of national, um, in, at the national level. And it's updated every year in about November. So if you just Google Canadian Cannabis Survey, you, you can see all kinds of statistics regarding cannabis use, the impact of legalization, all those kinds of questions people have. Again, it's Canadian source, but it, it's I'm sure that it's not that you know very different across different countries. So it could be interesting. Excellent. Thanks. I will put a link to that in the show description so people can find it. 
All right, Patricia, thanks again for joining us uh, on the podcast and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patricia DiCiano. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Trusted Canna Nurse. Our next episode drops December 26th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, go to canmedevents.com and register for the CanMed 24 Innovation and Investment Summit before December 31st to take advantage of our early bird rate. I also invite you to follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to or watch us. We really appreciate it. All right, until next time, I hope you have a safe and happy holiday and that you'll come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.